Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I don't see Allison here, so while, while you're turning, I'll make fun of my wife. Only because, as you'll see, she deserves it. But, uh, so we had a, uh, a 20th uh, anniversary party at uh, where I work um, on Friday. And Allison came and helped serve. And uh, it, was pretty, it was pretty neat. And, uh, but I, I had to stand up in front. And uh, I was one of the people of the 20th anniversary party as well. When I got home, I was pretty tired. Um, and my oldest daughter, Hallie, said, Dad, um, I want you to know that for the first time when I looked up and I saw you up in front of everybody today, um, it really does look like you're putting on weight. <laughs> I thought, well, that was a nice thing for Hallie to say. I mean, I get on the scale every morning. I know uh, what the reality of the situation is. And... Uh, uh, so I said, thank you, Hallie. And then I turned to my wife, uh, and she said, it did look like you were putting on some weight. Then she said, but I think it might just have been the, the shirt that you were wearing. And I, <laughs> I said, oh, that was nice of her to soften the blow. She, she said, yeah, I think it was just the shirt you were wearing. Anyway, I have a trip, uh, for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday this coming week. So I asked, as I often have to, I don't know those of you who have children, but for me, there's a lot of clothes in the house that, gets wa that get washed, but sometimes dads don't. Dad's clothes don't get washed. And I said, you know, I have one uh, dress shirt left in the closet and one pair of pants, so I really need you guys to do some laundry, and they did. And uh, so anyway, this morning, uh, I was getting uh, to a late start. I, I'd spent time here and not getting physically ready. And so I uh, had gotten, you know... Uh, some of my attire up, I said, Allison, can you, can you run to the closet and get me out a shirt? Which shirt do you think she pulled out for me? <laughs> she pulled out the same shirt from Friday, and she brought it to me and said, here you go, as if I was going to put that thing on. And I said, I'm not wearing that. What are you, are you serious? I, so yeah, so this morning I've had those self-conscious moments where I'm like, well, this isn't the one. So if you think I look big in this shirt, don't tell me about it. I'm running out of, out of options in the morning. <laughs> anyway, oh, to be human. We are going to read uh, chapter 9 all the way down uh, through verse 23 this morning. And the plan is to go through the logic of chapter 9 through verse 23 and then to make an application point or two at the end. That's the plan. If I run long, which happens from time to time, we may end up spending a couple of weeks in these 23 verses. But for now, uh, let's just read it all together and then we'll start at the beginning. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Paul writing. Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war 
at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope, he should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the holy things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting Void, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. And that's as far as we'll go. Um, the passage is often used in a way that it's not really meant to be used. Which is not to say that people often get the application of the passage wrong. But the passage is often used to talk about pastors and salaries. And it is profitable to that end. It does talk about that. But... To talk about it in those terms alone is to miss the context of this particular chapter in the broader scope. And the broader scope we discovered last week in chapter 8 is dealing with something much more personal. Chapter 9 falls in between 8 and 10 
8 having introduced a very difficult subject for the Corinthians, 10 offering Paul's final words on that same subject. So chapter 9, while it may seem to be like this wild left turn into pastors and salaries, etc., is not about pastors and salaries at all. It might say true things to that extent. But it is the middle and it is a crucial part of the point that Paul began making in chapter 8 and that he concludes in chapter 10. Now, just as a reminder of how we got here, the issue in chapter 8 is that there are Gentile Christians in the Corinthian church who are very sensitive about buying and eating food that has been used or that has come out of idolatrous worship inside of a temple. Now these are Christian people in the Corinthian church. They're not unbelievers. And furthermore, Paul has told them in chapter 8 that it is not immoral to eat any of the food that came out of those temples. He's told them that plainly. And yet, because of their own deep personal history with what goes on in those temples, with the impact that worshiping those idols has had in their own previous life perhaps, or perhaps in the lives of loved ones, or perhaps merely in the broader community in which they've lived. For them, even though they have heard the instruction of the Apostle Paul that there is nothing immoral in eating this, they still can't separate in their conscience, and we talked about that a lot last week, eating the food that was offered in these temples, these animal sacrifices, they can't separate it from the idolatry and all the practice and teaching of the idolatry that comes out of those temples and places of worship. And Paul has said a couple of profound things. One, that knowledge is good, but simply knowing the right thing does not make one person better than not knowing the right thing. He says in chapter 8 that, verse 8, Food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Now the person who's eating this food has knowledge, both in mind and conscience, that this is not a violation against God to eat this food. The person who can't, in good conscience, eat this food is not on the same internal foundation yet. Their conscience is still bothered by eating it. And what he is saying here is, the person with the knowledge is not better than the person without the knowledge. We are neither better or worse, but perhaps stronger or weaker. And Christians should patiently endeavor to see all those who are weak in their understanding of Scripture, weak in the development of Christian conscience, grow. And Paul goes on to make the point, it would be an obstacle to Christian development and growth in the life of a weaker brother, a sensitive brother, someone who is still bothered by this behavior. It would be an obstacle and a hindrance to their growth 
so much so that they might even perish. In other words, they might even apostatize themselves from the faith. If we go on callously and boldly engaging in this behavior that we know offends them, that we know hurts them, that we know they don't have peace about, just because we know, well, there's really nothing immoral about it. In fact, he says, to knowingly do that with total disregard towards the conscience and the feeling of a weaker brother is to sin against that brother and to sin against God. And in that vein, to invite the judgment of God upon you in your life. And he lands in chapter 8 with this verse. And this is the introduction to chapter 9. This verse is. The, the chapter divisions in the Bible are inserted by men to make it easy for us to find where it is we're trying to look up. But Paul is merely writing a letter. So verse 13 of chapter 8 is intensely applicable to verse 1 of chapter 9. It's the same train of thought. And he says in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He, he has said something bold then, hasn't he? And we might, pause for a second and say well that seems ridiculous Paul has just professed a willingness to be a vegetarian <laughs> as opposed to causing someone who is weaker in the faith newer in the faith not as developed in the faith to stumble and fall away from the Lord and there are those who might read that and say I'm not sure if he is serious Now for us, not eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, at least on the surface, would not appear to be a big deal. Um, I don't think that the meat in the deli at Kroger has come from the altar of some god or goddess. I think it has simply been prepared for the sake of commerce which we can talk about the idolatry of that from time to time, but I don't think that I'm wounding anyone's conscience by what I buy at the store. I might be setting myself up for a little bit of criticism from time to time, but I don't think I'm wildly offending anyone. But not so for them. And for them, the issue is sensitive, and for them, the issue is delicate. And it might go so far as to mean that depending on where they bought their food and how they bought their food, it might now come to them at a far greater price. Or it might mean they could not eat certain things at all with the certainty that it hadn't come from some temple. Idolatry is not like how we think of worship today in the ancient world. There were temples everywhere and everyone served the gods and the goddesses. The gods and the goddesses were the gods and the goddesses of the city. This was a big deal. Such a big deal that when Paul deals with the idolaters of Ephesus, this huge, huge metropolitan place, he gets run out of town and people get beaten up because he's threatening the industry of idolatry. <laughs> 
His life's on the line. So for the Corinthians, this is a big deal. And he lands in a very personal way and we should be careful when we throw ourselves in the middle of a problem because somebody might just turn around and say, prove it, prove that your devotion is that strong. Easy for you to say you wouldn't eat meat if that's what it took to keep somebody from stumbling. You're not in Corinth. You're not here. You're not in this situation. Easy for you to tell us what you would do, Paul. And that is the context of this personal testimony in chapter 9. And it leads right back to the same issue in chapter 10. Chapter 10, again, meat sacrificed to idols. So here is Paul's defense of himself then, that he's not just blustering about something in a hypocritical fashion that he has no intention to back up. This is his testimony. Chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Now that was the word in the Greek used in chapter 8, verse 9, when we read, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours, in the New King James it's liberty, freedom, it's the same Greek word in verse 1 of chapter 9. Am I not free? Do I not have liberty? Do I not have freedom? He's connecting the ideas. What he is about to talk about in terms of his freedom as an apostle is connected to the freedom that they who would eat this meat are claiming in light of the stumbling block it creates for the weaker brother. Why should my freedom to eat be diminished by this person who has a wrong understanding of what's moral or immoral with this stuff. So now he's going to talk about his own freedom and exercise of it. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Here's a defense of his apostleship. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Now, to be an apostle is, is to be sent by the Lord. And in some sense, we are all apostles in that vein. But to be an apostle in terms of the title itself, it meant one who had seen the Lord. Peter was an apostle. John was an apostle. James was an apostle. Now, Paul had been invited into this apostleship in a miraculous way on a road to Damascus. That is not something that's ever happened to me. I have never seen Jesus. I have never looked upon the Lord. One day I will. But I have not. I am sent by the Lord, sure, a little a apostle, but I am not an apostle. He says, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, if someone else would raise their hands and say, I don't know about Paul and his apostleship, yet doubtless I am to you. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is one of the first letters that Paul wrote chronologically this letter to the Corinthian church. He's writing to one of the first peoples that he goes to when a church is established. He's saying, am I not an apostle? Of course I am. Other people might say, I don't know about what this guy that I'm hearing about Paul is doing, but you guys can't say that. That's what he's, that's what he's getting at. 
Now he's going to offer several logics, but he begins in verse 3. My defense, do you see how he has to defend himself? Not that anyone here is making some massive attack. He's defending verse 13. He's defending this statement. He's defending his promise that he would lay down his own freedom for the sake of the work of God in someone's life. My defense to those who would examine me, to those who would call me a hypocrite, to those who would say he wouldn't do this. Verse 4. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So logic number one, okay? If the other apostles, and he specifically mentions Cephas, who is Peter, if they have a right to be taken care of by the fruit of their ministry and work, don't I have that same right? Logic one, if if. If Peter and the other apostles have a right to live and to prosper, to eat and to drink, even to bring along their wives and families so that their wives and families are provided for. If they have that right, shouldn't Paul? That's the logic number one. This is why he's getting to his apostleship. Now this is something that he had to blatantly say. And he had to blatantly say it because... He'd taken nothing from the Corinthian people. Not a thing. So he's saying, look, you might not have given me anything, but don't think that I don't have the right to it. Because you can't say that Peter and the other apostles, as well as their wives who they brought along and their families who they brought along, you can't say they don't have a right. No one else is looking at them and saying, well, let's, they don't own it. They shouldn't get anything. They shouldn't be taken care of. Their needs shouldn't be provided for. You can't look at them and say that. So clearly, I should have the same right. <laughs> Logic number one. Logic number two to defend this freedom, this right. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? In other words, logic number two. Isn't this just common sense? <laughs> If a soldier has been commissioned to go fight, I mean, they don't make him save up all of his money first so that he can buy all of his stuff to go do it and pay for himself the whole time. If you're going to send a guy into war, you got to provide for him and take care of him and give him what he needs to fight the war. He's not going to make a great soldier if, if you don't, right? You're not going to get a lot of volunteers if you don't. You're not going to... Of course, doesn't a soldier who's going out to fight a war, doesn't he get his expenses taken care of? And then he says, a guy who plants a vineyard or, or who plants seed and has a farm. I mean, anybody going to criticize him for walking through the vineyard and taking a grape off and eating it? I mean, of course. Of course. What about the person who tends a flock? Now, shepherds were, were often slaves, by the way. 
But even the slave of a master to whom the sheep do not belong, who's out there tending flock, is allowed to drink the milk of the flock. And <laughs> I mean, no one's criticizing him for doing that. So logic number one, you, nobody's got a problem with the right of the freedom of the other apostles. Logic number two, this is just plain common sense. Logic number three, verse eight, do I not say this as a mere man? Or do I say these things, I'm sorry, as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it's written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, he answers. Gotta love it when Paul asks a question and answers it for us right away, right? For our sakes, he says, no doubt this is written. That he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes should thresh in hope. Now pause there. Logic number three is a biblical argument. First, there's the, well, you've said this is a right for the apostles. I'm an apostle. Second, it's the, doesn't this just make common sense? <laughs> Third, there's a biblical argument. And in, and in Deuteronomy, chapter 25, it's really strange, actually, if you were to turn there and read it. You, you don't need to now, but I'd look it up later. It's really strange. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 says exactly what he quotes. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. But that is the only verse in the entire chapter about animals and farming and stuff like that. It's not about that at all. That's why Paul's saying, is, is God suddenly concerned in verse four of this chapter of the law for his people? Is he suddenly concerned that we treat our, our cows right? No, he's making a point. And the point is, and this is the context of Deuteronomy chapter 25, the, the, the passage starts with how you should judge, how the elders in the city should judge among disputes with people. I mean, about serious stuff. The point is, it's unjust to make your cow go out and tread through the field to, to break up the, the wheat and the chaff, the grain and the chaff, to drive the cow through here to do all this work for you all day, and then to put a muzzle over his mouth so that he can't just, as he's going about his business, bend his neck and take a mouthful of the grain that he's treading on. And Paul says, do you think God is just really concerned about how the cow's feeling when he's out there doing that? No. He's saying this for our sakes. Not necessarily just specifically for the apostles' sake, but for all of our sakes when we think about the labor that we expect someone to do. That's what he's saying. This is a biblical argument. Verse 10, or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes. No doubt. This is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope that he should be a partaker of his hope. You know, the cow going out there and doing this work should do it with a joyful heart, knowing he's free as can be to take a mouthful whenever he gets hungry. And it's a, it's a testimony for all of us that when, when we go out and we work hard, that we should do it with the hope, the joyful hope, that God will bless our labor, that we'll have some partaking in it, Right? That's the point. Verse 11, now he drives it home to his apostleship. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Now he doesn't answer that question in the next verse because he shouldn't have to. 
What is more important? Spiritual things or material things? If you are more concerned about the material things, then you've missed the whole point here of what Paul's ministry is about. So he says, without even the need to revisit the question, the rhetorical question, he asks, so obviously, if we have sown spiritual, life-changing, eternity-bending things in your life, if, if you have moved off an ark that would lead you to eternal destruction, and now your life is spiritually growing towards an eternal inheritance, if we have sown, planted, spiritual things in your life, is it some great thing that we should take food or money from you? <laughs> dust to dust, ashes to ashes stuff? It's not. It's not. And anyone who would raise their hand and say it is has missed the point to begin with. So he doesn't even answer the question. He simply moves on to verse 12. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? In other words, if you would give money to the apostles, Peter and them, I mean, aren't we even more in that we're the ones who've come and actually sown these spiritual things among you? If you would render your taxes to Caesar, <laughs> your material things to Caesar, what about us who've sown spiritual things? You wouldn't, you wouldn't render anything to us? Is there no right? Is there no freedom? Is there no privilege? Now we move on to the fourth logic. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel. The word hinder is the word that was used to describe what the soldiers would do to the roads when an enemy, when an army was advancing. And what they would do is they would take the utensils that they had and they would chop up and break the roads to pieces so that the army could not easily advance it would slow the it would hinder the oncoming army what he's saying here is we have not used this right but we would endure all things including while we're serving the lord going out and laboring for food and shelter so that we do not break up or delay the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then the logic of this, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the holy things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Now you and I may be unfamiliar with elements of this, but they all knew it. It was obvious whether you're talking about in Jerusalem or in Corinth. The priests who served at the altar ate from the food, the animals that were sacrificed there. Everybody knew that. And nobody complained about it or said, that's not fair, you know. Well, now, Paul has invited the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that would obsolete the need for human priests. Think about that. Paul has shared the gospel, has sown these spiritual things in a way that would free them from the obligation to take an animal to a human being who could then, through that human being's sanctity and holiness, offer that animal on behalf of this 
sinful person to a God in the hopes that that God might look upon the offering made by the priest and overlook the sin and transgressions of the person bringing it. And for those human beings who claimed to stand, whether they were pagan or whether they were the priests of Israel, for those human beings who even as Paul is writing, proclaimed the ability to stand between God and man and take that role of reconciliation, for those men, no one raised a finger and said, we shouldn't let them touch any of this stuff. We shouldn't let them have any increase. We shouldn't, they shouldn't give them, they shouldn't get anything for this. His fourth logic is, how do you reason that out? That these people who would bind you up in the forgiveness of your sins by claiming to be the mediator between you and God that they should be taken care of but, but Barnabas and I who would free you from all that don't deserve anything? You see what he's saying? I mean, how do you reason that out? How do you figure that out? Verse 14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now we don't have that command from the mouth of Jesus unless it's when he sends out his disciples in the New Testament and he tells them when you stay in someone's home, eat freely of their table and he tells them don't worry about being an obligation to them. He says don't go from house to house but when you find one house, stay there. It doesn't matter if you're an obligation. You're sharing the gospel of the kingdom in that place. Eat whatever's presented. You know, don't be a picky complainer, but stay there, right? Because, and this is the word of Jesus, a laborer is worthy of his wage, which seems to be the point Paul is making. If the Lord spoke more definitively to what would happen on the other side of the cross, we don't have it recorded, but Paul says, from the Lord, this is clear. This right is proclaimed. Now, commanded clearly doesn't mean that Paul, who is not taking of this, and who openly says he's not taking of this, is doing something wrong or sinful. It clearly doesn't mean that. Otherwise, Paul's, in his defense of himself, is just condemning himself to sin. But what it means is the right, the freedom, is commanded. In other words, like our Bill of Rights. This is a right clearly defined by God. Clearly laid out. So four logics there. One, the other apostles are clearly the example here. Two, this is pretty obvious in all the world. Soldier, farmer, shepherd. Three, this is an Old Testament principle. And four, this is a New Testament principle. So Paul now has clearly laid out the defense that this is an established right. Okay? And now verse 15. But I have used none of these things. I have laid this freedom aside. I have forfeited this right. That's what he's saying. Nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. In other words, nor have I laid out these four logics in order to manipulate you and to start doing things for me. That's what he's saying. Because that's what it might have looked like, right? 
Every time I've ever preached or taught on pastoral compensation, it's like, I know there are those, oh, is he trying to ask for something or is he trying to set something up or maybe he means we should do this or what's the alternative? He's saying, there's no alternative. <laughs> I'm simply telling you what the rights are. I haven't exercised the rights and I'm not telling you now so that I, I'm setting you up to exercise these rights. Why? For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. There are those who might say, well, if Paul's going to brag about all this Christian service, we should just pay him something and then he won't feel this way anymore. He won't be able to say all this stuff because this stuff makes us feel bad. He won't be able to say this. We should just pay him something. And on the other side, you say, well, why should Paul be boasting? I mean, bragging and pridefulness, that's not a good thing. Why should he be boasting at all? But then he turns it around immediately in the next verse. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast for. In other words, don't try to shut me up about this. Because when I talk about this, I know that if I preach the gospel, it's not bragging about anything. How can he say that? because I was on my way to murder Christians, <laughs> which is not exactly worthy of a reward. I was a persecutor of the church. I was throwing people in prison. I stood by while Christians were stoned, even from the young age of a little boy. I'm not saying this because I have anything to brag about, and you're not gonna shut me up about it, he's saying simply by giving me something. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul envisions pain, discipline, correction, Punishment is the language of woe is me. So I'm not bragging when I'm telling you this is what he's saying. I'm telling you this because this is the way it is by the grace of God. It's out of necessity that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is not, I didn't volunteer for this is what he's saying. The Lord commissioned me and put me in this. So I don't have anything to brag about for doing it. You know, Paul was not a volunteer soldier. He was drafted. Verse 17, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. If I had volunteered, then I would have a reward. The, the word for reward is wage. If I'd volunteered, then I would have a wage. You know, good job, Paul. Here's your compensation, great but if against my will, again, this is back to 16, necessity is laid upon me. If against my will, which in theological terms it was, it's not by the will of Paul that he became an apostle. He didn't go to seminary to become an apostle. You know, it's, it's the work of Jesus Christ that made Paul an apostle. This was totally against his will. <laughs> but if against my will, then I'm not deserving of reward. If against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. A master takes a servant and makes him a steward. That's not like a job posting. It's like, hey, who wants to be my steward? No, no, no. A master 
sets a steward in place. And if he is a steward, then he has been entrusted with a stewardship. And this stewardship is the work of the gospel. Verse 18, what is my reward then? (laughs) If it doesn't come by way of my voluntary service, what is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. Paul saw his reward in this, not as compensation for a job he volunteered to do. He didn't see this theologically as a job that he volunteered to do. No, instead he was commissioned into this. So if he is going to have a reward, he sees his reward for him without condemning the other apostles as his voluntary dismissal of the charge of the service that was his right to proclaim. I'll do it without charge. He could not volunteer himself into apostleship. But he could volunteer himself out of the obligation of others if it promoted the gospel. And here he says it does. That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Now we think of abuse and we think bad word. It is in English. But the word here is the same as in chapter 7, verse 31. And there, it's not talking about abuse as in doing something evil or of misconduct it's it's meaning to fully use something to use it to the fullest extreme in that passage it says the time is short brothers those who use things in the world should use them as though they do not abuse them in other words use them to whatever extent they need but don't fully you know engage in all that the world has to offer because the time is short and this is dust to dust and ashes to ashes you should not make your life about filling yourself up with everything that you can and here it's the same word In other words, Paul is not simply trying to gain as much as he can get. He's not going to use his authority in the gospel, his apostleship in the gospel, as a means of getting everything he can out of it. Not that it's wrong for Peter or for the other apostles to receive compensation, but Paul voluntarily has chosen not to do this at this time for the sake of the gospel Not to fill up everything that he has a freedom to fill. Not to take everything he has a freedom to take. Verse 19, and here we get back to the root cause. All of this, brothers and sisters, all of this is not primarily to make a statement for paying or not paying pastors. All of this is to defend Paul's statement that he would willingly lay down his Christian rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel at work in other people's lives. That's the point. This is simply an illustration of it, a very powerful illustration of it, because it's one thing to say, I won't eat a particular kind of food, but however significant that might be, it's another thing entirely to say, I won't take any money and I'll go work another full-time job. That, in other words, Paul envisions one as superior to the other. So anyone who wants to accuse him of not really being the kind of person who would lay down his rights can't look at the way he's conducted himself and say he's not the kind of person who would lay down his rights. He has laid down his rights. And now he jumps back to the root issue. Verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. 
The word servant is slave, which is more appropriate than servant in this text. Because what he's saying is, though I am free, I have made myself a slave. That's what he's saying. And you don't get more extreme than a free man and a slave. You don't get a, a stronger opposite, a stronger comparison. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. There's the gospel. Whatever the group that I am sharing with requires, I am willing to relinquish any freedom and any right and any privilege if it means this people will listen and take to the gospel and have spiritual life where there wasn't any before. To the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win Jews. You, you might remember in Acts when he circumcised Timothy, who did not need to be circumcised. I mean, Paul, the guy who goes around preaching against the circumcision. <laughs> that guy who desperately wants us all to know that we are freed from the obligations of the law and circumcision, who is arguing for the acknowledgement of this tooth and nail with those who would come along and say, you can't be a Christian unless you're circumcised. I mean, he takes those guys to task in every single letter, it seems. That guy circumcised Timothy. Why? Because without circumcision, Timothy would have difficulty among the Jews. Why should Timothy care? It's his right. It's his freedom. Yes. But Paul knows as a minister, as a servant, you have to lay down rights and freedoms to make progress for the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews to those who are under the law. As under the law. Jews are under the law. That I might win those who are under the law. Then to those who are without the law, the Gentiles, I became as without the law. Not being without the law toward God. In other words, he says, I didn't behave immorally. You know, I didn't behave as if I had no, no conscience before God. But if it came down to what I ate for dinner or, or how far I walked on, on the Sabbath, I mean, I became as one without the law. Not without law toward God, but under law toward Christ that I might win those who are without the law. What does that mean? Well, he ate pork and he, he, he sat with people who the law said were unclean. And he, I mean, he didn't jump into adultery because he's not without law toward God, but he's, he's not under the ceremonial law of man. And then we get to, again, chapter 8 in verse 22. And this is the tie back. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. Those of you who are strong and who know your Christian freedom and who knows this behavior is not sin and this behavior is not immoral and no one has a right to judge me for this and no one has a right to judge me for that. Paul knew all of those things too. And he says, To the weak I became as weak. I laid down my freedoms and my rights. Why? 
that I might win the week. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now, does that mean that Paul is a spiritual chameleon? No. No. It means he is willing to lay down whatever right or freedom that Jesus has purchased for him at the cross. He's willing to lay down whatever right or freedom he needs to in order to see the gospel bear fruit in the life of someone else who is weaker. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. With you is the idea. He doesn't have to lay down these rights and freedoms so that he might be a partaker of it. He is a partaker of the gospel. These rights and freedoms come to him by way of the gospel. By way of being set free from sin. Set free from the constraints of the law. But if he's going to partake in the gospel with others, then others are going to have to be saved. And for others to be saved, he is going to have to lay aside certain liberties and freedoms and be the slave to Jesus Christ that he has committed himself to being. When we think about our behavior in terms of what is right and what is wrong, there's value in that. Is there anything wrong with me doing this? Is there anything wrong with me doing that? Well, they can't say I'm doing anything wrong. I'm not doing anything wrong. All fair enough. People are not one to the Lord that way. The power of the gospel is when free people lay down their rights and sacrifice so that they might see some saved. Paul mentioned a stewardship in these verses. Who is this stewardship from? It's from the Lord. This morning I was on uh, the deck outside and I was by myself and I was reading my Bible and I don't know, Evie had a bad dream or something. I don't know if she did or not, but she came out and I was the only one up and kind of around. And so she came out and she got up on my lap and sat with me for a few minutes and kind of cuddled in there. And we're kind of past that age with Evie in general where like, you know, she's constantly cuddling in. I mean, she's not a toddler anymore. Uh, and, but she did. And she wanted, she said some very sweet things. I love you, dad. And, give, you know, the kind of stuff that makes being a parent really feel worth it. And then I said, I think mommy's in, in there because I saw her walking around. And I was trying to get back to this. <laughs> but she looked at me and she said, I know, but I saw you alone out here, dad. And I thought, well, that's really sweet. But then I told Evie, I said, well, I, I wasn't alone out here, Evie. I was spending time with God. God is with me. And I was, I was being with God out here because I wanted her to understand what her dad is doing outside in the morning on a deck. And a steward knows that God is always with him or with her. And a steward then is sensitive 
to the rights and the freedoms, the sacrifices that their father would have them make in the day-to-day in their stewardship of this gospel message. When we are just in pursuit of our own thoughts, times, and pleasures, well, there's nothing wrong with me missing this. There's nothing wrong with me doing this. There's nothing wrong with me here. There's nothing wrong with me there doing this, doing that. That is not how a steward thinks. A steward is simply someone who manages what belongs to another. The gospel doesn't belong to you. A steward says, God has privileged me with this ambassadorship on the earth. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to save sinners. What does he want me to do with this thing that he's given me to manage right now and today and this week? Not what must I do. (laughs) Not what would my rights offer me here. What should I do? What can I do? What might I do that I might win some? It's for the gospel's sake. And I hope you caught that as we're singing the song at the beginning of the service. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise Him. Right? Praise who? Jesus. And then that last verse that we sang, then all creatures will fall on bended knee and they'll say, oh, praise him. That's what we are in service to. A king with a kingdom and an inheritance for you and I and a commission, a responsibility to invite others into this kingdom. And that matters to Paul and it matters whether we're talking about what we eat for dinner where it matters when we're talking about where we go to work in the morning. No matter how tired we are. I bet Paul was tired. I bet making his way into the synagogues and place after place, traveling down these roads with, without the power of uh, four-wheel drive and, and more horsepower than would have fit on one of those roads, sitting down and talking and talking and talking and praying and weeping and pleading and just the exhaustion of feeling with rejection, rejection, rejection. I bet Paul was tired the day after the Lord's day. Even when things went well, I bet he was tired. Gotta get up. Gotta go make tents. Why? Because I am serving the Lord. This matters to the kingdom. We should all look at our rights and Christian freedoms that way. It's not about what you can do. It's about what you should do for the Lord. Let's close with the word of prayer. Father, I love you. And I pray if there's anyone here who has heard all of this gospel talk this morning and who is not a believer, that perhaps they have been on the journey through the scriptures this morning with us circling all around their need for a Savior. 
Father, thank you for the gift of your son Jesus who himself surrendered his rights, who laid down his freedom, who allowed himself to be bound to a pole and whipped, who surrendered his freedom in the most practical picture of hands and feet being nailed to a cross. Hands that will one day rule and reign feet that have been kissed and wept over. These belonging to the Son of God who could have called down legions of angels to smite His enemies, to testify to His brilliance, to exalt Him on earth forever as one day He will be. Father, in this picture of Jesus who surrendered His life, so that we might live. Give those who are lost this morning the strength to surrender their lives in service to Him, to trust in the forgiveness of sins that He purchased, to place their faith of eternal life in His resurrection, to lean on Him for leadership and instruction, to trust the promises that you will fulfill by His work. For the rest of us, Father, give us strength not to do as we can, but to do as we should. Bless us through the giving of tithes and offerings. Let these things be used for the profit of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.